internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a build of God and reach the side of the ocean floor. So what is nihilism? Nihilism, in the simplest terms, um, and these are the terms we are going to discuss it in today, is simply the lack of inherent meaning. Uh, your life, you're not born with meaning in your life. There is not meaning in the world. Society doesn't have meaning. Uh, civilization, history, none of that has an inherent meaning. Uh, it's all just materialism. It's dialectical materialism. This is, this is Marxist thinking. This is economic thinking that, that it's just atoms bumping around in empty space, uh, accumulating on each other and its contingencies and its cause and effect. Um, and, but there are many, 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 many things follow from that that need to be enunciated. So if there's no inherent meaning in life, then that means there's no shared purpose amongst individuals and that there's no collective or shared destiny amongst individuals and culture and civilization. And they're not driving towards anything that, that, that none of this is leading to anything. Um, now, some of this is taken for granted. This is taken without, without question. I mean, when, when a civilization feels like there's inherent meaning, uh, some of it is taken for granted and without forethought. It's just like a mode of being. I'll explain what I mean by that. But some of it is uh, superficially kind of placed onto people or onto a culture from the top down or from an outside threat. So what I mean is that religion is something that provides civilization with inherent meaning. It imbues your life and the life of people around you with like a, a sense of purpose of some sort. You're driving towards whatever the case may be. Uh, you're, you're driving towards heaven. Uh, you're driving towards like the perfect life in Christ. Uh, you're all working together to venerate your ancestors, things like that. And you're born into that. You don't created and this is getting towards like you know the uh the 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 shopping mall the amazon prime uh version of existentialism that everybody kind of kind of uh has probably absorbed just through literary culture and popular culture over the years people have a more or less familiarity that the ideas of existentialism are more or less that you create meaning for yourself and this is sort of turned into like a hallmark pop culture happy hippie thing with people like Joseph Campbell, uh, with the whole, uh, follow your bliss. The whole thing is like, you create the meaning yourself and you, you make joy and you make a purpose for yourself. Uh, this is very informed by Nietzsche. Uh, Joseph Campbell read Nietzsche well, and you can see his work all over Joseph Campbell's work. This comes from, of course, like Amor Fati, love your fate, right? Or, or the eternal recurrence, live your life in such a way that you would be happy you would be pleased to live it over and over again for eternity. Amor Fati means like make the best of what you have. This is all very simple stuff. This is part of the reason I think Nietzsche has become Reddit and why Nietzsche is sort of uh, uh, abused and, and, and misused in not just popular culture, but in academia as well. And the left and liberals, um, you know, I knew about Nietzsche, these, these simple concepts a long time ago. Right. The other thing is like uh, to, to, to imbue 
life or civilization with meaning is something like an external threat. And the best example of this, and I don't care what anybody thinks, is Fukuyama's book, uh, The End of History. That's a good book. I know Fukuyama's become extremely cringe. He's, he's a sellout and whatever. I don't have to convince anybody of what Fukuyama's become, but that book is worth reading. And he worries in that book, he, he laments in that book that the uh, threat of communism, you know, taking over the world, being, being uh, mitigated by the fall of the Soviet Union, well, the threat isn't mitigated, it totally disappears, that like the meaning and shared sense of purpose in the West is going to, to go away and people are going to lose their thumos, they're going to lose their like sense of purpose um, and become, you know, last men. That's why the book is called The End of History and the Last Man. That this uh, external threat drives people to um, work together to make the civilization better in whatever way that plays itself out. Um, space program is my favorite example, but even building up the military and building up the military industrial complex and doing things like uh, <coughs> manning uh, military bases and things like that. It's like, it gives everyone something to do. It gives everyone something to do part of a big project that you're all working together in civic pride and nationalism and things like that. Uh, so that, that like the people in that state and that condition don't have to work towards that. They don't have to do anything. They just kind of show up to life and that's there. That's an option for them. So in a nihilistic age, and nihilism sets in for many different reasons in many different ways. Um, in a nihilistic age, like none of that's there. People, people don't have any of these things to sort of guide them or drive them. And they start to partake in nihilistic activities. So something that was like perhaps before, like a pastime uh, that you're doing on your downtime in between, you know, working to build and maintain civilization becomes like a proclivity and it becomes like a habit and it becomes an addiction and it becomes like your main reason for being and it doesn't bring anything to you and it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't do anything for you. So it's nihilistic to sit around and play video games all day or to sit around and binge Netflix for a whole weekend. Uh, it, it's nihilistic to, to watch pornography addictively. It's even nihilistic to engage in hookup culture. So this is all hedonism, certainly, but hedonism itself is a form of nihilism. And it, it you know, there's a lot of meta metaphysical stuff at play here, but at the end of the day, it's like when you have nothing else to do and you become bored, uh, that's when the nihilism starts to set in. Now, I have more to say, but I want to let Athenian come in and sort of add to this uh, because we, we should focus a little bit more on the religion part. That is a broad overview of what I mean by nihilism. Yeah, um, I would just say there, um, look, uh, Nietzsche talks about nihilism in a number of different ways uh, throughout his uh, published works. Um, someone had, of course, tacked on their own Substack article to one of the tweets uh, about this space. <laughs> Uh, and in that, uh, I, I took a, I took a look at it real quickly, uh, and he talks about something that is important for Nietzsche in uh, the Notebooks. Uh, Nietzsche distinguishes between active nihilism and passive nihilism. 
so I, I don't want to even get into that. I just want to let everyone know, uh, yes, uh, Nietzsche does make distinctions about nihilism uh, that are important at a kind of advanced level. Uh, but uh, he never addresses those in his own published works, uh, primarily because I think at least with Zarathustra, uh, he's showing us through the drama uh, of what Zarathustra encounters. And it's our job as thoughtful readers uh, to, 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 to sort of go through the education that Zarathustra himself has to go through. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of reading, right? We find ourselves in these works and we find uh, people we know in the works, right? You know, we sort of like what Aristotle says in the poetics, uh, you discover that this is that, you know, like, oh my God, you know, I know that that's me, right? Or something like that. Um, but one of the more helpful uh, things that I found uh, that Nietzsche says about nihilism certainly uh, is that tweet up there that I uh, pinned to the space. It's from Daybreak. Uh, the German word there, interestingly enough, for that book Daybreak can also mean twilight right so it can it can either be the you know the sun is coming up or the sun is going down uh that imagery of course so very important for nietzsche uh but it's it's number 92 um and what it, it it's titled uh, at the deathbed of christianity uh, and the reason i like this is because and see the, the reason that zarathustra is hard is because nietzsche is banking very heavily on imagery uh and metaphor um precisely because uh, of the poetic way in which he's, he's turning philosophy into, he's turning it away from logos, uh, that, that word that's uh, been on fire on the timeline all day today. Um, but he's turning away from sort of the logos towards a, a, a sort of poetic approach to thinking uh, of philosophy. Um, but, but he does in his more, and, and this is why more people read, for instance, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, uh, Genealogy and Morality, uh, because that's more of the essay form that we can all relate to, uh, which is fine. Uh, just always keep in mind uh, that he uh, he intends for everyone to really focus on Zarathustra uh, if you want to go very far in his, his depth. Uh, but what he says there in 92, and I'll, I'll just sort of read the Cambridge translation. I haven't double checked the German there. Um but it should probably suffice, uh, is he says, uh, he says really active people, uh, which is to say busy people, right? Busyness, business, right? Uh, really active people are now inwardly without Christianity. And the more moderate and reflective people of the intellectual middle class now possess only an adapted, that is to say, marvelously simplified Christianity. A God who in his love arranges everything in a manner that will in the end be best for us a God who gives to us and takes from us our virtue and our happiness so that as a whole, all is meet and fit. And there is no reason for us to take life sadly, uh, let alone to exclaim against it. Uh, in short, resignation and modest demands elevated to the Godhead. That is the best and most vital thing that still remains of Christianity. Uh, that's a very low bar. Of course, he's being sarcastic. Uh, he says, but one should notice that Christianity has thus crossed over into a gentle moralism. It's not so much God, freedom, and immortality uh, that have remained uh, as benevolence and decency, uh, or I would say politeness, uh, politeness, uh, and the belief that in the whole universe, uh, benevolence and politeness of disposition will prevail. Uh, it is the euthanasia of Christianity. Uh, now, that is uh, the way I explained it in the tweet up there is because what Nietzsche is going to famously have his madman say in the 
toward the end of the joy of science uh, is he runs in the middle of the day with a lantern shouting, God is dead and we killed him. Uh, and so that's, I think, what he means by that uh, in our the, the transfer, the historical transformation that Christianity has undergone uh, due to the Enlightenment uh, is that we've transformed Christianity into something that is uh, very leisurely and casual uh, something that doesn't make us work too hard, right? Uh, and something that, uh, you know, we can be comfortable with and sort of pride ourselves on, right? We do the very minimum uh, and, you know, we, we can come out and feel good about ourselves and virtue signal, right? We virtue signal. Um, and that's what uh, Nietzsche has to say. That's, so that's how we killed God and that's how God dies. Uh, now, a far more... Um, a far more strict version of nihilism that he presents... Uh, and I hesitate to even use this because I don't like references to will to power. Uh, let's all be perfectly clear. Will to power is just a collection of his notebooks that were put together by his sister after he died. Uh, he did not intend them to be published or anything, uh, but in there, uh, it's section, uh, it's number 585. Uh, what he says is this. He says, a nihilist is a man who judges of the world as it as it is that it ought not to be. In other words, a nihilist is someone who doesn't think the world is what it's supposed to be. Uh, and of the world as it ought to be, that it does not exist. Uh, so let me, uh, he's, he's, he's being cheeky with his eloquence there. Uh, what he's saying is that a nihilist is someone uh, who judges that the world is presently not what it's supposed to be, and what it's supposed to be doesn't even exist, right? In other words, an idealist who doesn't even believe in his ideals. Uh, and then he says, according to this view, our existence, action, suffering, will and feeling uh, has no meaning. Uh, the pathos of in vain is the nihilist pathos. Uh, in other words, the cynic, right? Uh, and Nietzsche is very explicit about cynicism. That is by far the most dangerous thing for man is cynicism. Uh, not skepticism, but cynicism. Uh, yes, keep. Keep all this in mind, everyone. These are very important. This is a great quote that you're reading here. It's like it's like we put this together together, but we didn't. <laughs> so keep these <laughs> and, things in mind. Uh, finish and, your thought, but I want to get back to cynicism. Yeah, and then I would just as, as sort of the last thing, or really it should have been the first thing uh, before I went to the will to power passage. But uh, the preface to Beyond Good and Evil is extremely important. Uh, particularly section five of the preface. Uh, he wrote this in 1886. He went back in 1886 over all of his publications and gave them new prefaces. Uh, everything received a preface except for Zarathustra because one could argue that Zarathustra is the beginning and the end, uh, the alpha and the omega of all of Nietzsche. Uh, but section five is really the key. Uh, I think that if one wanted to summarize Nietzsche in a nutshell, uh, you could do no better than to read section five of the preface. Uh, I won't read all of it, but I'll read this much. Uh, he says, he says, actually, there was something much more important in my mind just in, uh, than my own or anyone else's hypothesizing about the origin of morality. Uh, or more precisely, the latter concerned me solely for the sake, uh, for the sake as an end to which it was, uh, it is one means among many. He says, uh, the issue for me was the value of morality. And over this, I had struggled almost solely with my great teacher, Schopenhauer, uh, to whom that book, uh, he's talking about uh, human all too human. Uh, so he says, uh, towards that book, uh, 
my great teacher Schopenhauer, towards uh, whom that book, The Passion and the Secret Contradiction of that book is directed, uh, as if it is a contemporary. Uh, for that book, too, was a polemic. Uh, the subtitle of Genealogy and Morality is a polemic. Uh, so he's directly, very openly uh, arguing uh, with people. Uh, he says, in particular, the issue was the value of the unegoistic, uh, of the intrinsic, of, I'm sorry, uh, of the instincts of compassion. Uh, now, uh, they translate that word, uh, Mitleiden, uh, as compassion. It's better translated pity. Uh, so he says, in particular, the issue was the value of the un unegoistic person. Uh, of the instincts of pity, self-denial, self-sacrifice, precisely the instincts that Schopenhauer had gilded, deified, and made otherworldly until finally they alone were left for him as the values in themselves. He puts that in quotation marks. Uh, the thing in itself, right? He has Kant in mind here, but especially uh, Plato, right? Plato Socrates is always saying things like, what is beauty in itself? Uh, what is virtue in itself? Uh, but he says precisely the instinct that Schopenhauer had gilded, deified, and made otherworldly until finally they alone were left for him as the values in themselves, on the basis of which he said no to life, uh, also to himself, uh, but against precisely these instincts. In other words, saying no to life. Uh, uh, there spoke from within me an ever more fundamental suspicion and even deeper delving skepticism. Precisely here I saw the great danger to humanity. Uh, its most sub sublime lure and temptation. And into what? Into nothingness? Precisely here I saw the beginning of the end, the standstill, the backward glancing tiredness, the will turning against life, the last sickness gently and melancholically announcing itself. Uh, I understood the even more widely spreading morality of pity, which seized even the philosophers, uh, so even Schopenhauer was guilty of this, it seized even the philosophers and made them sick uh, as the most uncanny symptoms of our time, uh, uncanny European culture, uh, as its detour to a new Buddhism, to a Buddhism for Europeans, to nihilism. For this preferential treatment and overestimation of pity on the part of modern philosophers is something new. Uh, until this point, philosophers had agreed precisely on the worthlessness of pity. Uh, I name only Plato, Spinoza, La Rochefoucauld, uh, and Kant. Uh, four spirits as different from each other as possible, but united on one point, their low regard for pity. Uh, so this problem of pity uh, really gets to what he understands as being the root of nihilism. Uh, and that's what he finds in this simplified version of uh, Christianity that he's talking about. Uh, in daybreak, uh, we everyone is uh, so overcome with what he refers to as the morality of pity. Uh, he says uh, the problem with Christianity is that it is transformed uh, into this thing this that he calls the morality of pity, uh, where everyone has a kind of saying no to life. Uh, and so this question of what it means to, to really be alive, uh, what is life for Nietzsche? Uh, that's going to be on the other end of what it means for him to have overcome nihilism, uh, which is to say how he overcame this thing that we recognize today as this morality of pity, uh, which we could also call victim culture, uh, the thing which is around us everywhere. Everyone wants to be a victim. And why do you want to be a victim? Uh, because they will show you pity. Uh, you can't even say the goddamn word retard on Twitter. Uh, without losing your account because we're supposed to have pity 
for these people. Uh, that's that's where we're at. Uh, can't even say the word retard. Uh, but that all of these things are manifestations uh, of precisely what uh, Nietzsche understood as nihilism. Uh, and it's all going to be ushering forth from this thing uh, that we recognize as pity. Uh, and he's going to hang that around the neck of Christianity. Uh, and then he's going to go even further and push it back all the way to Plato. Uh, and that's when he's going to say that we need a kind of, uh, to use Heideggerian terms, a destruction of the Western tradition of philosophy to really understand ourselves uh, means to understand why it is that we've all become so obsessed with this uh, this new virtue of pity, uh, but yeah. All right. That's let's, let's focus that because that is uh, very important and it's on point. And we're going to circle back around to cynicism, the death of God and the euthanasia of Christianity But to stay on this pity thing. And what he's talking about, how people become offended by everything. Um, uh, think back to my opening statements, uh, giving a, a broad and simplistic definition of nihilism. Um, we're going to continually be elaborating on that with our Nietzsche quote. So I have a Nietzsche quote here that I think uh, builds on exactly what he just read uh, quite nicely. But I just want to say that <clears throat> elsewhere in Nietzsche, and as we all understand it, uh, the word pity can be more or less synonymous with egalitarianism. That's a big part of the problem, uh, e egalitarianism. And um, uh, pity is taught as a virtue, a Christian virtue. And it can be, but it can also be uh, not just a crutch, but even even a, a vice or it can be a, uh, uh, well, the vice really is pride. Right. Because you you are trying to make a show of your pity and you're trying to turn your pity into like what we call virtue signaling now. Right. Um, it can also be something that that stymies civilization to the point where we're turning on each other and turning on each other is going to be a theme that's going to come up soon as well. Uh, because egalitarianism, in order to have pity on those with less and to to make everybody equal to practice true egalitarianism is really just a great leveling that uh, really the more you read Nietzsche, the more you see he's talking about that. Uh, this this uh, will to pity, as they call it, is really just a will to for the lower to bring the higher down. So now keep all this in mind as I read uh, this quote. Now this is, this is a long quote that kind of covers two main points, one of which is very pertinent to Zarathustra, but I'm either going to only read part of it now or I'm only going to address part of it now uh, because the first part gets at what we're talking about now. So this is aphorism 23 in the gay sciences and it's called the signs of corruption. He says, consider the following signs of those states of society which are necessary from time to time and which are designed with, or excuse me, which are designated with the word corruption. As soon as corruption sets in anywhere, superstition becomes rank, and the previous common faith of a people becomes pale and powerless against it. For superstition is second-order free spirit. Those who to surrender to it choose certain forms of formulas that they find congenial and permit themselves some freedom of choice. Whoever is superstitious is always compared with the religious human being much more of a person, and a superstitious society is one in which there are many individuals and much delight in individuality. 
So to be clear, okay, he's using superstition in a different way than it's traditionally understood. And the if Fisher takes the mic later, I'm going to ask him to define more clearly uh, because the I have the uh, Kaufman translation of gay sciences and I have some problems with Kaufman. But one of the things he does that's nice and other translators do this too is they'll put a little uh, footnote for some of the words they're using and they'll put the German in the, at the bottom. So that means that that word probably has multiple, multiple meanings and multiple interpretations and he wants you to take note of that. So we'll circle back around to that. But uh, the way he's using it now, right, um, he, he's not really using superstition in the way we think of it. That means that there's like, you know, ghosts or there's monsters in the forest. He's saying superstition. Let me get back to this. Uh, it's a second order free spirit. Sec- superstition is a second order free spirit. And whoever is superstitious is always compared with the religious human being. So take note of that. He's contrasting the superstitious man with the religious man. He is not conflating the two. That's important. Uh, So a superstitious man, I think, would be someone who sort of uh, partakes in the, 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 um, the sort of ideas of the day. So as I understand this, like superstition today might be like global warming. It's like the popular thing to believe in right now. Let me take a drink and then continue to read. It's the superstition of our day. And it's not based on faith. It's based on science. And that becomes important as I read on. Give me one second to take a drink. Yes, we all need to have in mind Marco Rubio whenever he gave the response to the president's address uh, and was chugging down water uh, desperately uh, as he was overheating. Yes, well, I am Mexican, so that, that's a good analogy. So whoever be, is being superstitious is always compared with the religious human being much more of a person. So when he says they're much more of a person, what he means is that, like, in society today, in a, in a post-enlightenment rational society, if you are going with the superstitions of the day, you are considered much more of a person than a faithful religious man. This becomes clear later, but I want to make that distinction as I'm reading. In this perspective, superstition always appears as progress and as a sign that the intellect is becoming more independent and demands its rights. Those who then complain of corruption are the inherents of the old religion and religiosity. See what I mean? If the people are complaining that these ideas, this superstition is corruption, they're seen as like the backwards people, the people of the religion and the the religiosity. And they have also determined linguistic usage hitherto and given superstition a bad reputation even among the freest spirits. Let us realize that it is actually a symptom of enlightenment. That's the key. It's actually a symptom of enlightenment. Second, a society in which corruption spreads is accused of exhaustion. So this society, this corruption, this enlightenment. So what, what is enlightenment, right? What does he mean by that? Enlightenment values, secular values, rationalism, the use of your rational mind to work out, to order society. This is what I was talking about before, how nihilism uh, means that society is not imbued with any inherent meaning. You use your enlightenment rationality to come up with these superstitions that uh, 
order the day and give the day meaning, give, give, give the inherent meaning of progress, give the shared purpose of progress to society through these faculties. Progress as distinguished from destiny. Uh, destiny is what you have when you have like natural order, like kings and aristocrats, priests, things like that. Uh, inherited rulership, that is destiny. Uh, or if, um, you know, you're the chosen person of God, you're the chosen people of God, it's your destiny to fulfill God's will on earth, it's your destiny to die and go in heaven, go to heaven and be in communion with God. That's not progress. That's something totally different. Nihilism is progress. Progress is nihilistic. Anyway. <laughs> Second, a society in which corruption spreads is accused of exhaustion. And it is obvious that the esteem for war and the pleasure in war diminish. While the comforts of life are now desired just as ardently as warlike and athletic honors were formerly. This is why I said before, porn addiction, video game addiction, these are the proclivities, these are the habits and the addictions of people with nothing to do. These are nihilistic endeavors of a pe people of a nihilistic society that have no shared purpose. They do not have an external threat that they need to like become warlike to pr protect society from. Uh, so they engage autistically in their tabletop games as if they were actually, you know, sending the Third Reich to the Eastern Front. Uh, this is LARPing. This, what we're talking about is LARPing. And I'm going to read a passage later from this book that is far more direct. I mean, Nietzsche like invented the concept of LARPing. Uh, so remember that too when I, when I read the next passage from The Gay Science. But what is generally overlooked is the ancient national energy and national passion that became gloriously visible in war and warlike games have now been transmuted into countless private passions and have merely become less visible. I want to make a joke about fapping, but I'm going to keep reading. Indeed, in times of corruption, the power and force of the national energies that are expanded, excuse me, the national energies that are expended and probably greater than ever, and the individual squanders them as lavishly as he could not have formerly when he was simply not yet rich enough. Remember what I said about dialectical materialism and economics and accumulation. We've now, uh, we won the Cold War. Uh, we're the richest nation in history. We have no enemies on our borders and look at what we're doing with it. That's nihilism. That's Nietzschean nihilism. That is what we need to overcome uh, in today's world. Thus it is precisely in times of exhaustion that tragedy runs through houses and streets. The great love and great hatred are born, and the flame of knowledge flares up into the sky. All right, there's about four, six, five more paragraphs. I'll read one more. Third, it is usually said as if one wanted to make up for the reproaches and superstition and exhaustion that such times of corruption are gentler and that cruelty... Ah, yes. Good. Remember Steven Pinker's attacks on Nietzsche. Remember Steven Pinker's criticisms of Nietzsche. Remember his book... The better, better angels of our nature and the things that people say about Nietzsche. One of his criticisms, and these are actually the only honest criticisms I've found, is that he's preaching violence and he's preaching brutality. And that's a bad thing. Uh, well, they're right. 
that is what he's preaching. Um, but it's a good thing. So listen to this paragraph in light of Steven Pinker's c- criticisms of Nietzsche. Third, it is usually said as if one wanted to make up for the reproaches of superstitions and exhaustion that such times of corruptions are gentler. His book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Pinker's book. Such times of corruption are gentler and that cruelty declines drastically compared with the older, stronger age that was more given to faith. But this this praise I cannot accept any more than those reproaches. All I conceded is that cruelty now becomes more refined and that its older forms henceforth offend the new taste. But the art of wounding and torturing others with words and looks reaches its supreme development in times of corruption. It is only now it is only now that malice and the delight in malice are born. The men of corruptions are witty and slanderous. They know of types of murder that require neither daggers nor assault. They also know that whatever is said well is believed. So just to think on uh, Athenian's comments earlier about how everybody is offended now. Um, in times of peace like this, and in times when everyone's rich and they have time to entertain themselves in whatever way they see fit, they have the freedom... <coughs> And they have the wealth and they have the luxury and the leisure to become offended at whatever daggerous words they they feel are thrown around at them. So I feel that passage goes a long way to explain uh, what Nietzsche means by nihilism, what the problem is that we're facing right now. I'm going to have Nietzsche, uh, I'm going to have Athenian come in uh, and then I'm going to read the other passage from gay science farther on that I was talking about, about the LARP. Um... Uh, just remember the theme here. I'll keep reminding you is uh, the lack of inherent meaning. There are there is no religion imbuing civilization with uh, meaning, destiny, sense of purpose, and there's no outside threat uh, giving us co- cohesion and a reason to band together and work together to defend ourselves or you know attack an enemy before they attack us because uh, those things are all very important. Go ahead, Athenian. Yeah, one of the things I was going to say is that, uh, and I, I sort of tried to bring this out to that guy who was uh, attacking Nietzsche all over the timeline today, is that uh, I personally think that uh, even for very thoughtful Christians, and this is this is this you know this is where I think Dostoevsky becomes so incredibly useful, and we'll get to that later. Uh, but even and especially for very thoughtful Christians, um, this is why Nietzsche is so important because. Um, you know, the call is always to proselytize, right? To, to witness uh, of why you believe and what and whatnot. Uh, and you, it's just a sort of principle of human nature that we take other people on their terms, right? Uh, and so unless and until you understand nihilism, uh, it becomes very difficult to proselytize to others because they just don't understand why you don't know what they're struggling with. Um, because most people are struggling with this, uh, the way that Nietzsche is going to really describe nihilism in Zarathustra uh, is a kind of dizziness, uh, of a feeling like one has become untethered all of a sudden, right? Um, and one of the words he uses, uh, one of the German words that he uses in the, the, the second, the, well, it's the first dance song. Uh, in Zarathustra, where he talks to life, uh, and that's also important because he anthropomorphizes life, uh, and he anthropomorphizes his wisdom. 
Uh, and it's a love story between having to choose between these two. Uh, and one of the words he uses in there, uh, uh, it has a root word of grounding, right? Uh, when, when he says that uh, his wisdom tells him that life is unfathomable, uh, the German word there uh, has a root of ungrounded. Uh, so his wisdom is telling him that life itself is ungrounded. Uh, it can't find its way to a stable grounding of things. And life, of course, is going to laugh at that and say, no, uh, you're a theorist cell. Uh, I am fathomable. Uh, your science is what has you wrong. Uh, but what I was going to say, when, when you told me that you were looking for the section, uh, something you said you were looking for something in gay science, uh, I thought you were talking about the very beginning of book three. Uh, and this speaks to kind of the, the, the warrior spirit that's going to really burst forth in Zarathustra. Uh, for those who don't know, Gay Science was the book that he writes right before uh, Zarathustra. Um, and the way he begins book three is he says, uh, it's aphorism 108, and it's titled New Battles. Uh, and he says, after Buddha was dead, uh, there still showed, uh, they still showed his shadow uh, in a cave for centuries, a tremendous, gruesome shadow. Uh, God is dead, uh, but given the way people are, there may still for millennia be caves in which they show his shadow. In other words, God, our God's shadow. And he says, and we, and then he uses the, the M dash, right? Uh, and in German, the M dash means to pause and think. Uh, and he, he uses the M dash and he says, and we pause and think, uh, we must still defeat his shadow as well. Uh, so this is where you get into the realm of where, Nietzsche's understanding of nihilism uh, is that he himself sides with the uh, with a very strict form of nihilism, uh, and then he's going to immediately say thereafter, uh, he's going to say, "But when will we be done uh, with our caution and care? Uh, with all, when will all these shadows of gods no longer darken us? When will we have completely?" And here's the key word: he says, "When will we have completely de-deified nature?" Uh, when may we when uh, may we begin to naturalize humanity uh, with a pure, newly discovered, newly redeemed nature? Uh, so we have to. So this is where Nietzsche's thought separates into two forms, right? There's the diagnostics and then there's the prognostics. The diagnostics is that we're in nihilism. Uh, and then the second is prognostics. OK, what do we do going forward? Uh, and this is where you can sort of the Christian can step back and say, OK, uh, now I've understood the nihilism uh, and now I can sort of have a kind of guarded distance about what he's going to advocate for going forward. Uh, but I would simply say that uh, the the very premise of that hard form of nihilism on Nietzsche's end, uh, which is not to say the casual nihilism of our culture. Right. Uh, that's what he diagnoses that as being. Uh, he uses the imagery of the Bible. He says it's people that no longer have a strong yes or a strong no. They're lukewarm. Uh, they they. They can't unknot their stomachs, right? Uh, they just don't know what to believe anymore. Uh, exactly what uh, is said in the gospel of the kind of people that God would spit out. Uh, but Nietzsche's own understanding of the stricter form of nihilism comes from uh, from even his very first published works. I mean, it's always there. Uh, and he never really goes into deep detail about it. Uh, but what it is, is the premises of modern science. Uh, it's in his second essay on history, which is really an essay about uh, science. Uh, entitled uh, The Use and Disadvantage of History for Life, and he calls them the deadly truths. Uh, he, said, he takes it as simply given that there's no cardinal distinction uh, between species. Uh, the fluidity and the flux of all things is just simply a given. 
uh, you think of like evolution theory, whichever version you want. Uh, you think of uh, approximation theory and mathematics, uh, all these kinds of things, right? Everything seems to be a fundamental flux uh, that doesn't, you know, where is the beam for which you hold steady uh, that you ground yourself? Uh, and that's, uh, that's going to be uh, what Nietzsche sides with is his premises. Uh, but just wanted to add that in there because that adds the very strong element uh, that's in the, of science that's in Nietzsche. Uh, most people fail to recognize the very, very powerful element of science that's very much alive in Nietzsche. Uh, I mean, he titles the book, The Joy of Science, right? I mean, science was extremely important for him. Uh, and Zarathustra is going to have to concern himself with these things as well. Uh, this also is something that Dostoevsky is going to be very con concerned with. But I just wanted to add that element of science there uh, because so many people can tend to relate to science more than they can relate to philosophy. Uh, and my provocation here is to say that we get both of these uh, with Nietzsche. So more of an indication to read him uh, and to at least be acquainted with him, certainly for thoughtful Christians as well, uh, because you have to understand the people you're dealing with uh, and the people we all are and that we all are dealing with are people who are already infected with nihilism. So we have to understand these things. Yeah, that was a good passage to read. Um, and I was going to read another passage to sort of elaborate on the stuff we were talking about, but maybe we can move on to the God is dead uh, idea. Um, and what, what does that mean? So he says in both books, Joyous Science and uh, Zarathustra, that God is dead and we killed him. <clears throat> the simplest way to understand that is just, of course, we stop believing in God, right? Um, and we, we could almost leave it at that because that's pretty much true. That's, I, 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 mean, I, mean, I mean to say it's not that it's true, but that's basically what that means. Um, but I think it deserves to be elaborated on, especially since some people, atheists and others, uh, well, some people will disbelieve it. I'm not going to try to convince them um, because they get offended by it, right? You've probably seen this before, like God is dead, Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche is dead, God, the quote. Um, but but that's kind of silly. It's not really taking uh, Nietzsche seriously. It's not engaging with the work seriously. But an atheist might think, uh, you know, the Ivan, if, uh, if God is dead, then everything is permitted. Ivan Karamazov, I'm sorry. And they may think that's a good thing. And the whole Church of Satan, Anton LaVey thing, uh, Aliester Crowley started this, though, as far as I know. M might go farther back. Um, oh, I, I just want to add, I just want to add uh, real briefly uh, that that phrase, uh, if everything is, I'm sorry, if nothing is forbidden and everything is permitted, that is in Dostoevsky, uh, that comes from Dostoevsky, but that is also in Nietzsche. Uh, so this is this amazing touchstone. Uh, in the Western tradition of two enormously uh, influential thinkers uh, who have this exact same thing, literally word for word, uh, in mind. So just wanted to, to point that out. The, the, par the parallels are really uncanny and unbelievable. And I found out that at least some of these parallels were not intentional, that Nietzsche, although he did read Dostoevsky, some of the things he wrote uh, that sound exactly like Dostoevsky, he wrote before he had ever read him. But my point, though, is that there are those who take the God is dead thing and run with it, and they think it's a good thing. Uh, think, think about the fact that Michel Foucault, who contracted HIV at, at a gay orgy uh, in Berkeley, soon after he left, of course, Algeria and Tangier, Morocco, where he was uh, sleeping with underage little boy prostitutes, 
um, he his favorite thinker was Nietzsche. Uh, he, of course, ended up dying of AIDS because of his proclivities. He was a big celebrant of Nietzsche. So there were people who took this up like it was a good thing. And that the dilemma is God is dead. Um, we killed him. So now what happens? We live in nihilism. So one of the ways to deal with nihilism, of course, as I said before, is hedonism. But this isn't this isn't Nietzsche's uh, solution. So I want to read another passage from the gay science. This one much later in the book, uh, because it went a long way to inform me really what he meant about God being dead. And this passage sort of synthesized for me um, the two distinctions I gave about the lack of inherent meaning where you have the uh, belief in God, right, that imbues everyone with, you, you, you all have the love of God and Christ and the shared destiny, as well as the uh, outside threat that I was talking about that sort of gives you purpose. It's a more, much more of a material thing. This passage kind of made it clear to me that uh, those two things can kind of be one and the same. Not, not the external threat part, but the part of like a material circumstance or a material condition of your society. Because the church, of course, throughout the Middle Ages was involved. Okay, so the church exists at all because of the fall of the Western Roman Empire um, and the governors who were administering the provinces of the Western Empire, um, were the, the, the bishoprics were basically modeled on the governorships of the Roman empire so that uh, the deacons and the bishops were like, were like, it, this was all like Roman uh, institutions used to administer the far flung reaches of the Western empire who were far away from central control in Rome and where the emperor lived. So after the Rome fell, right, the warlords took over and they only cared about certain things, booty, accumulating booty. Uh, they use the bishops and the deacons and all them to administer their provinces, their, their territory. So the church became like the institution of administering the government, even though you couldn't even really call it a government at the time. Uh, that's what the church was. The church was an institution of like societal cohesion and like keeping things going, keeping the proverbial lights on, right? So by the time you get to the Middle Ages, this is all developed into like a very sophisticated society. And uh, the church helped like administer like land deeds and things like that. And when people would die, the church would help. And of course, the church would take a cut. People would leave the church land. The church would like help people like divvy up their property and their inheritance and things like that. Uh, so the church was a very active, it also gave people like literal places to go, like people who were handicapped or were orphans or uh, for, were cast out of their family or whatever the case may be. They gave them a place to go to the monastery or to the nunnery or orphanages and things like that. So it took an active role. And then when, you know, the euthanasia of the church and the church uh, crumbled, God died the Enlightenment took over and, and uh, the secular society took over and the state began to run all these things. So as that transition took place, um, you know, the church faded from importance. And actually the introduction to the Antichrist, I have, I have it here. I'll tell you the edition that I have. The introduction to the Antichrist talks about how uh, Nietzsche came in a 
at the end of a long tradition of the whittling away of like the legitimacy of the church. So science, for example, and Darwin, right? The, the Darwinian evolution happened, uh, occur, I think 1865, whatever it was, it was before the antichrist came out. So all these things had like whittled away at like the structure of the cosmos, um, Galileo's revolution and Newtonian physics and all of these things, all these things like undercut and undermined, uh, the way, like the very structure of like the, the, of space was, uh, transitioned to this secular, you know, mathematical thing. And this, this is very Heideggerian. We talk about in framing a lot. That's what this is in framing is the replacement of, uh, you know, the idea that God created everything with mathematical formula that explained everything. And uh, the introduction to the Antichrist that I have here explains how, like, the last part of that project was to break down uh, morality. Because once the, the, the structure of the church was broken down in that God created everything and that uh, God was real, like the existence of God was disproven by science and the Enlightenment, people were still defending the church because, well, uh, it's still a source of morality for people. And the introduction to the Antichrist explains how like Nietzsche was the one that came along and said, no, the morals of the church are also invalid because the morality of the church in this secular society is going to lead to nihilism and it's going to lead to problems and it's going to cause us to implode basically and that we need to create a new structure of morality. We need to evaluate the values uh, of Christian morality which is slave morality, and come up with a whole new set of values. And that's what Zarathustra is. He's the invaluator of values. And he's the one who comes up with a new set of values and tries to implement them and embody them. There's various, there's major various problems with that that maybe we'll have time to get into. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not going to find the name of this guy, uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the in the, inter the Twilight of the Idols and the Antichrist, the Penguin Classics uh, edition. Definitely read. I said once in an Athenian space that if you haven't read Antichrist and you want to talk to me about Nietzsche, I m probably won't have time because that preface, that introduction and the book itself are extremely important. Now, look, I don't mean to go on at such length, but I think uh, to discuss God is dead to really understand it, uh, I have to read this passage, and um, this can be the capstone on it, or uh, Athenian can add to it as well, but let me take a sip of water and read this passage. Pay attention, it's very important. All right, sorry about that. This is aphorism 358, and it's entitled, The Peasant Rebellion of the Spirit. We Europeans confront a world of tremendous ruins. A few things are still towering. Think about everything I just said, okay? A few things are still towering. Much looks decayed and uncanny, while most things already lie in the ground. It is all very picturesque. Where has one ever seen more beautiful ruins? And overgrown by large and small weeds. The church is this city of destruction we see the religious community of Christianity shaken to its lowest foundations. The faith in God has collapsed. 
the faith in the Christian ascetic ideal is still fighting its final battle. An edifice like Christianity that had been built so carefully over such a long period, it was the last construction of the Romans, naturally could not be destroyed all at once. All kinds of earthquakes had to shake it. All kinds of spirits that bore, dug, gnaw, and moisten have to help. But what is strangest in this, those who exerted themselves the most to preserve and conserve Christianity have become precisely its most efficient destroyers. The Germans. He's talking about Protestantism. Okay? Just so you know. It seems that the Germans do not understand that the nature... Oh, excuse me. It seems that the Germans do not understand the nature of a church. Are they not spiritual enough for that? Or not mistrustful enough? The edifice of the church at any rate rests on a southern freedom and enlightenment of the spirit as well as a southern suspicion of nature, man, and spirit. It rests on an altogether different knowledge of man and the experience of man than is to be found in the north. The Lutheran Reformation was, in its whole breath, the indignation of simplicity against multiplicity, or to speak cautiously, a crude, ingenious misunderstanding in which there is much that calls for forgiveness. One failed to understand the expression of a triumphant church and saw nothing but corruption. One misunderstood the noble skepticism, that luxury of skepticism and tolerance, which every triumphant self-assured power asserts its, uh, excuse me, permits itself. Today, it's easy enough to see how in all the cardinal questions of power, Luther's disposition was calamitously myopic, superficial, and incautious. He was a man of the common people who lacked everything that one might inherit from a ruling caste. He had no instinct for power. Thus, his work, his will to restore that Roman work, became, without his knowing or willing it, nothing but the beginning of a work of destruction. He unraveled. He tore up with honest wrath what the old spider had woven so carefully for such a long time. He surrendered the holy books to everybody until they finally got into the hands of the philologists. Who are the destroyers of every faith that rests on books. This is why I tweeted the other day that is not Catholic for all of the people in the church to read the Bible and come up with their own interpretation and their own meaning and then go out and emulate Christ based on their own personal reading of the Bible. That's what trad cats do. But that's not a Catholic thing. That is a Protestant thing. But of course, a tweet only has so many characters and I don't think I communicated it properly and of course I got attacked. People demanded that it is Catholic to emulate Christ. Of course it is. What I'm saying is it's not Catholic to for you in your hubris to go read the Bible and say, oh, that's that's what Christ is. That's who Christ is and what he does. And I'm going to try my hardest to go live like that. The church is supposed to tell you what to do. It's not as simple as that. I'll go back to reading. But that's why I made that tweet the other day. He destroyed the concept of the church by throwing away the faith and the inspiration of the church councils. For the concept of the church retains its power only on condition that the inspiring spirit that founded the church still lives in it, builds in it, and continues to build its house. He gave back to the priests sexual intercourse with women, but three quarters of the reverence of which the common people, listen to this, 
He gave back to the priests sexual intercourse with women, but three quarters of the reverence of which the common people, especially the women among the common people, are capable rests on the faith that a person who is an exception at this point will be an exception in other respects as well. It is here that the popular faith in something superhuman in man, in the miracle, in the redeeming God in man, finds its subtlest and most insidious advocate. Luther, having given the priest woman, had to take away from him oracular confession. That was right psychologically. With that development, the Christian priest was at bottom abolished. For his most profound utility had always been that he was a holy ear, a silent well, a grave for secrets. Everyone his own priest. That's in quotation marks. Scare quotes. Everyone his own priest. Sorry, I thought I scared away the Catholics with my comments, but they're still here. Good. <laughs> uh, everyone his own priest, unquote. Behind such formulas and their peasant cunning, there was hidden in Luther the abysmal hatred against the higher human being and the domination of the higher human beings as conceived by the church. He smashed an ideal that he could not attain. Well, he seemed to abhor and to be fighting only against the, the generation of his ideal. Actually, he, the man who had found it impossible to be a monk, pushed away the dominion of the homines religiosi, and thus he himself made with the ecclesiastical social order what in relation to the civic social order he attacked so intolerantly, namely a peasant rebellion. What afterward grew out of his reformation, good as well as bad, might be calculated approximately today. But who would be naive enough to praise or blame Luther on account of these consequences? <coughs> is innocent of everything. He did not know what he was doing. The European spirit became shallower, particularly in the North. More good-natured, if you prefer a moral term. So, see, he just he just equated, he said the spirit became shallower, then he changed it to more good-natured, if you prefer a moral term. Think about that. And there is no doubt that the development advanced a large step with the Lutheran Reformation. The mobility of restlessness of the spirits, thirst for independence. Okay. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I'm almost done here. Whole naive guile, ostentation, ingenuous in matters of knowledge. In short, that a plebeianism of the spirit, which is a peculiarity of the last two centuries and from which every pessimism has not yet liberated us. Modern ideas belong to this peasant rebellion of the North against the colder, more ambiguous and mistrustful spirit of the South that built its greatest monument in the Christian church. So listen, that was a long passage and I interrupted it a couple of times. So let me just summarize very briefly the key point here that the church is an institution of power, that the priests are authority figures. And that all of this authority was vested in them, and it rested in them, and people turned to them for certain things. Luther took that down. He broke that down. He broke down the hierarchy that the church gave to civilization, that gave to culture. And he leveled it, and he egalitarianized it. And if you think about how Protestant societies build up, it's like, a group of equals all working together and the guy down the street who's also the carpenter is also the preacher. 
Now, of course, they went on and did wonderful, amazing things. Uh, the Protestants who built America went on and did wonderful, amazing things. But this is the what we're living in now. This nihilism that is gripping America is what those people wrought. Obviously, there's lots of other factors that come in. Uh, but that was a society of people who didn't have, like, as it was building up, who didn't have, like, this overarching edifice of, of, of control and structure. And it, like, put these new ideas in. That's what Nietzsche's talking about here. These new ideas here of, like, Anyone can be the preacher. Anyone can interpret the Bible. Anybody could interpret the gospel. Uh, the, 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 the locus of authority about religious matters and morality is distributed throughout the people, and it's not in the church. That's what he means by God is dead. So uh, we should talk a little bit about Dostoevsky before we open it up. So let me let uh, Athenian respond to that and you know put his... Uh, two cents in regarding that and um i think we've kind of covered everything well i, I want to get to the cynicism that uh athenian mentioned so remember that that's one key theme we're, we're approaching here but uh, athenian come in and, and respond first yeah i mean um when you when you broached that uh it reminded me of something that i, I read that dostoevsky wrote in his own name uh, about the orthodox versions of Catholicism and Protestantism. Um, and I, I went ahead and pinned it up there to the top of the space. I'll just, I'll just read it here. Um, what, what he says is, uh, he says, on one side, at the edge of Europe, there is the Catholic idea, condemned and waiting in great torment and perplexity. Is it to be or not to be? Is it still to live or has, it, has its end come? In that sense, for instance, France over the ages has seemed to be the most complete incarnation of the Catholic idea. This France, who developed from the ideas of 1789 her own particular French socialism, i.e. the pacification and organization of human society without Christ and outside of Christ, uh, is and continues to be in the highest degree a Catholic nation, wholly and entirely completely contaminated by the spirit and the letter of Catholicism. Uh, for French socialism is nothing other than the compulsory union of humanity, an idea that derived from ancient Rome. He's, he's thinking of the word humanitas, uh, an idea that derived from ancient Rome uh, and that was subsequently preserved completely in Catholicism. Then he says, on the other side rises up old Protestantism. This is the German. Uh, through his entire history, he dreamed only of and longed only for his unification so he could proclaim his own and proud idea. And meanwhile, in the East, the third world idea, the Slavic idea, a new idea that is coming into being, has truly caught a blaze and has begun to cast a light that has never before been seen. It is perhaps the third future possibility for setting the destinies of Europe uh, and of humanity. Uh, now, I recognize that wasn't a response uh, to your comments about Nietzsche, uh, but uh, it, it, it's all I got. Uh, because because I was so busy wanting to hurry up and take a picture of that and pin it to the space uh, that I just have to leave it at that. Uh, I will simply say, in general, though, uh, the strongest criticism that Nietzsche ever has for anything uh, is socialism. Uh, that socialism is going to represent uh, everything incarnate of the last man, which is to say man wrapped up in nihilism, 
uh, self-satisfied, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, and I, I'll just sort of uh, leave it at that. Now, there's plenty, there's plenty of things to say about Nietzsche with regard to Lutheranism. Uh, I, I usually stay away from those topics because uh, most people like to historicize Nietzsche. And what they'll say is they'll say, oh, uh, he had a Protestant father. Uh, so he had uh, he had daddy issues. Uh, and so that's really what's going on with all his critiques uh, of Lutheranism. Uh, and I challenge you to find that in anything he published. Uh, the onus of thoughtful readers is always to argue the ideas, uh, not to straw man them. Uh, like that dumbass uh, who keeps commenting on the space about Hitler liking Nietzsche uh, as if, oh, my God, that's a reason why we should not read him or something like that. Uh, I want him to know that he can get fucked uh, because he's a moron uh, and he's quite possibly his name is probably Jamal uh, and he is probably a retard. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. I have no idea what Athenian is talking about, but. Um, I'm going to open it up after my next comment and then Athenian's comment after that. So we're going to start giving the mic to people. Uh, I hope Fisher is in the mood to talk tonight because I really wanted his thoughts on some of this. I see others as well. I, I'm going to start just giving out the mic. So please take it um, if you're one of those people. So let's bring Dostoevsky in quickly here because the space is called overcoming nihilism. But... We spent a lot of time defining nihilism, especially in the context of uh, Nietzsche. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, uh, well, go ahead. You can start, Athenian, then I'll, uh, I'll make my comments about Dostoevsky. Yeah, I was just going to say, in general, uh, the way that I present this, uh, the comparison of Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, and this is why I'll be curious to hear uh, uh, your very provocative comments uh, at the beginning of the space uh, that you think they're on the same page because uh, what I've found is that ultimately what it comes down to with Nietzsche versus Dostoevsky uh, is this thing called human nature. Uh, what is it? Um, because what nihilism is, is a, is a, at least for instance, as his Zarathustra presents it is it's a, this, this belief that contaminated the land uh, that, you know, uh, well, I'll sort of leave it at that. It's, it's a belief. There's a difference between a belief uh, and something that's worth, uh, that has substance. Uh, but what it is, is that if there is no such thing as human nature, if it's very malleable, um, then for Nietzsche, this is a boon. This is a great thing. Because what that means is that the, the long weight of tradition in the West, particularly of philosophy, philosophy is always concerned with giving an articulation for what this thing we call nature is. Uh, what Nietzsche is saying is that, there, is that if we don't know what nature is, then we don't know what man is, which is to say we don't know what his great possibilities could be. Uh, we don't even know if we are men, uh, have we even lived to our potential. Uh, and that really sort of encompasses so much of what's going on with the overman. Uh, now, Dostoevsky is going to take a very different stand on this. Uh, he sees the, the malleability of man as very dangerous. Uh, he's quite explicit about this. And my personally, my favorite writing of Dostoevsky uh, is Notes from the Underground. Uh, it's very short, but man, it packs a punch. Uh, and what the underground man says is he tells this tale of uh, how it is that uh, 
people, well, he uses Cleopatra uh, as an example. And he says, you know, Cleopatra used to have her golden pins that she would, she would get pleasure out of stabbing her little slave girls with it. Uh, and he said, over time, the slaves actually grew uh, to enjoy the pain. They got off on it. Uh, and so he says that that's effectively what has happened with this situation of nihilism is that uh, people have grown to really sort of revel uh, in the fact that there might be no such thing as human nature. They just sort of sink down to this. There's, a, there's no level. There's no, there's no floor uh, to how far a man can go in his depravity. Uh, and so for Dostoevsky, that's a great danger. Uh, and that's what he's going to find a kind of redemption uh, in a version of Christianity that he, that he sees as being able to put up a good fight against that. That's still uh, something that he can believe in. Uh, Nietzsche is not going to go that far down. Uh, Nietzsche's nihilism goes all well. Nietzsche is not going to be that optimistic. Uh, Nietzsche's nihilism, in other words, uh, it's all the way to the bone, baby. It's not skin deep. Uh, Nietzsche's nihilism is uh, he's all in. Uh, he's not going to believe in any gods. Uh, and he says, for instance, about the Enlightenment, uh, that we have to push forward. Uh, we have he's an accelerationist. Uh, he says that uh, uh, what's coming in the future hundred something years is he says dangerous experiments to find out what man really is, to find out the extent of man's malleability. Uh, he even invokes, uh, and this is what uh, this is why academia and polite society, we would say, uh, is so quick to jump on him and disown him because he does explicitly talk about eugenics. Uh, is he says yes, uh, experimenting in eugenics is needed uh, to to discover the greatness that man could possibly be. Uh, and that's something uh, that now that road is not going to be what Dostoevsky is going to go down. Um, now, people will I, I think there, there's much more to be said about this because Brothers Karamazov, I think, is uh, provides the best example of what Dostoevsky is going to offer as a kind of counter to what we could think of as the overman uh, with what he's going to refer to as active love. Uh, and associated with active love is to take on the weight of responsibility of everybody. Uh, and so those two things, active love and f total responsibility for all your fellow man. Uh, and you, you see that, and this is, this is important. I actually have some really good essays I found uh, that I'll add to my telegram about this that are worth reading. Um, as secondary literature on this, of course, uh, always read the primary text. But uh, what you're going to find is that the, you have Ivan's poem that he's been working on, uh, the, uh, the Grand Inquisitor. Um, now, it's going to be the next two sections that you're going to find the response to that by way of uh, what Father Zosima is going to uh, recount uh, in his own life story with these sort of three events that happen uh, and also the way that uh, Alyosha is going to respond. So it's not, uh, it's not going to be something that's doctrinal uh, that can be sort of itemized and listed and saying, this is what active love is, and this is, what it, this is what taking on the responsibility of your fellow man is. Uh, it's not like that. Uh, it's a kind of experiential thing that one has to live through one's life uh, and go that way. And, and in that respect, there's a kind of myst mystical quality to it 
that's very similar to the Overman, right? Because we never really get a de definition by Nietzsche of what is the Overman. Uh, again, it's going to be this kind of experiential thing uh, that has to take place throughout life. Um, so if you if you if you sort of book in those two things uh, as being uh, the, the great significance of why it's worth reading these authors, that would constitute, I would say, this kind of opposition, right, of a Nietzsche versus Dostoevsky, which is to say this uh, possibly not completely convinced of this, but possibly this overman uh, versus uh, the act of love and the, the responsibility uh, that gets shown to us through the life of Father Zosima, uh, as well as uh, Alyosha's dealing with Ivan and his nihilism. So, and I'll just sort of leave it at that. Uh, no, those are good comments, especially um, it, it covers some of the stuff that I was going to say. So I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. I probably overstated the similarity between Nietzsche and Dostoevsky at the very beginning. I, I don't mean they're uh, together on everything. They're actually very far apart on uh, certain things. That, but what they're together on is that uh, we are in nihilism and we can't do anything to get out of it as a society. We have to only figure out a way to mitigate it personally in our own lives um Nietzsche much more is an is much more of an accelerationist I mean Dostoevsky's not an accelerationist he's the opposite he's a conservative um he wants people to to uh find solace in the church which of course is what uh, crime and punishment is about but the dream that Raskolnikov has this uh in the epilogue of crime and punishment is extremely important and it's not spoken of quite as much as his, you know, the, 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 the body of the book and his, uh, his uh, falling into, into faith, his return to faith, excuse me. So in the dream that he has, he says that these rationality parasites infect everyone. And it's a disease that spreads all over the world. And that the whole entire world is gripped with this madness where they uh, basically tear each other apart and they form factions against each other. Each man having an idea in his head that he is so convinced of that he's correct in uh, that he and his friends who agree with him tear people who think differently to shreds until the next day where everybody comes up with brand new ideas and they form new factions and they go to work uh, to tear each other to shreds again every day until the world dies. And he says that uh, he sees no way out of this. And the only hope, I mean, he says this, <laughs> the only hope is that maybe a few people will survive. And that when uh, it finally burns itself out, those people can build a new society. Um, so that is not like optimistic and that is not really at variance with Nietzsche in the sense that uh, the, the only you've heard this phrase before probably right the only way out is through that uh, you can't really like overcome or excuse me you can't really like get out of nihilism you can't really like cure nihilism once ra a rationalistic mechanistic worldview sets in and everyone sort of discovers right and I wanted to say this earlier that nihilism 
is a result of rationalism. Okay, rationality, well, not rationality as such, actually, because rationality as such uh, can actually take on seemingly irrational uh, forms. But rationalism, like a society based on rationalism, and uh, one of the earliest examples of this we know of, of course, is the uh, Socratic method, or excuse me, the well, the Socratic dialogue of working your way rationally through a problem. And uh, the one of the most important things of the Enlightenment, which we keep talking about, is the uh, scientific method. So the scientific method is using rationality to work your way through an experiment or a problem to prove a hypothesis to find out, you know, truth, an external truth in the world about the way things are. Well, once you figure that out, you can't, like, unprove it. You know, so you have people who have supposedly have faith, you know, saying that they still believe in God despite all of these things. Uh, and of course, th there are those who don't understand it or don't believe in it and don't accept it. And they truly do have, you know, faith. But those aren't the people we're talking about. Uh, but they, those type of people become important, though. The people who truly have not been affected by rationalism the the plebs the little people the normal people the normies the npcs um i'll get back to them later when we talk about heidegger but let, let me let me just <laughs> add something here real quickly um this is uh, and this is sort of key for understanding nietzsche and um it's it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit different for dostoevsky but um it's very important to understand that Nietzsche is not against uh, reason. He's not against mind. Uh, and he has some wonderful descriptions of this uh, throughout. Um, and in fact, uh, in uh, that passage I referenced from Zarathustra, the, 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 it's, there's two dance songs. Uh, there's uh, the first one, uh, and then there's the second one, obviously. Uh, and in both of well, them, well, hold hold on. Can this wait though? Because I I wanted to finally bring Dostoevsky and I, and to go back to Nietzsche. It's like bringing us off the dose. Can can I wait? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, no, that's good. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I thought I thought you were talking about Nietzsche. <laughs> my bad. My bad. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, hold the thought though. So, um, I was saying that this condition is created that we're dealing with is created by rationality so the purpose of characters that uh like raskalnikov and ivan they're to show they're to dis display and to demonstrate the pitfalls of incorporating this rational mechanistic way of thinking into your life so both of them are trying to apply it to morality in different ways Ivan, or excuse me, Raskolnikov wants to become, uh, you know, a great man of history. He he basically wants to become the Ubermensch, which is why the essay I wrote, which I pinned to the top, is called The Failed Ubermensch. Raskolnikov is the failed Ubermensch, though. Of course, this book was written maybe 20 years before Zarathustra. Because he wants to become a new man, the new a new type of man, a great man. And he uses his rationality to create a new system of morality. And he wants to implement that system of morality into his life to go from being a nobody to be to being Napoleon or somebody. Solon, he, he names all these people he admires. Uh, and the way he wants to do that is to um, kill an old woman. 
right? So that's morally wrong, killing this old woman. But the old woman is a pawnbroker, so she kind of like takes advantage of people's poverty. And he's surrounded by drunkards, prostitutes, and gamblers, among others. Uh, so she's like preying on these people. So he justifies in saying that like, you know, I could kill somebody uh, a lot worse than her. Um, he goes on to say that he will then go do great things with the money he steals from her. He'll turn into one of these great men. So it will sort of like retroactively negate the wrongdoing that he did anyway. Or in other words, uh, he's and he's directly criticizing utilitarianism here, the, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. His ultimate justification for this is um, if I go on to do great things and bring prosperity to a whole nation, uh, then, then this woman's death will be justified. That that bad things have happened to her, but good, so many good things that will have happened to so many people uh, under me because I'm going to be a great man. Um, that it's going to like negate the, the 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 negativity. But he, his conscience, like it weighs on his conscience, and he can't. He's not up to it. He's not up to the task. But it goes even farther than that, though, because he's going against his own nature. He's going against who he is as a person, but he's also going against his station in life because he's a provincial, um, we're going to just call him bourgeois or middle-class person. He's not exactly a noble. Uh, like his parents had to go through and his family had to go through some great difficulty to put him through college. He's in St. Petersburg in college when he comes up with all this, right? But they were able to do it. They, they were like just good enough to make pretty major sacrifices, but they were able to do it. So this guy was not a destitute street, you know, urchin. Now, this was a major theme. This kind of like gave like the this is like what the novel is right in the 18th century, um, uh, the 19th century. Sorry. Like this was like a theme in like French novels and, and Russian novels of the provincial guy going to the city to like make something of himself and become a new person. This is what modernization was. And the, the, the books were like depicting that. And it's a total disaster for Raskolnikov. He, he sees it. The, St. Petersburg was like the most rapidly modernized city in the world ever at that point. Uh, the serfs had just been freed. All sorts of educational reforms had just happened. The military had been reformed to put a bunch of regular people were allowed to join. It wasn't so. So this is getting right back to what we're talking about about Nietzsche. Um, that all these authority and rank and hierarchy and like uh, um, 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 like stations that you were born into are being peeled away, and this new set of values is being uh, superimposed onto society. These Enlightenment values. Raskolnikov is the embodiment of this. He is the uh, characterization of all of that. And it's too much for him. So when he goes to Siberia and he meets the criminals there, right? The criminals are like, why did you kill someone? Like, you're, you're, I think they call him a, it's in my essay. This is all in my essay. Uh, they call him a nobleman or something like that. Or you're, you're a fine man. Why did you, this is not like what you do. This is not who you are. Okay. Leave it to us. Like, where, where are the criminals? Where are the born criminals? Where are the urchins? And Raskolnikov noticed, right, that these people who don't have all these ideas and this education that he had, that they had a pure, simple faith, right? 
that these people believed in God. And he was talking to them about being an atheist. And they were like, they were like scandalized by the fact that he was an atheist. They couldn't believe anybody was an atheist. Uh, that was, it was madness to them. His whole being was madness to them. So then he goes and Sonia is this 18 year old prostitute. If you've read the book, you know what, what she represents. And he eventually like falls into her, her arms and has this like religious revelation. And he realizes that like, he can't take the burden of like existence upon himself he has to like give it up and give it over to God. And this, of course, goes back to a, a passage in Matthew uh, about Christ saying that the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven first because when they hear the call of, of, of God or the, the command of Christ, uh, they listen the first time, which is which just basically just means they have faith. But the, the prostitutes uh, have a purer, simpler faith than the educated man and then the learned man. But my point about contrasting this to Nietzsche and how my thinking has like evolved a little bit is that I used to think that this was like an admonishment and a rebuke of like a Zarathustra because Raskolnikov is trying to be a Zarathustra figure. But Zarathustra isn't talking about like finding personal solace in exertion of the will through evaluating your values. He's talking about like the savior of humanity. He's talking about like the first man of many who are going to totally reorder society. So I don't actually think Zarathustra is a fucking self-help 12 rules for life book. Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment is telling you that if you try to take the burden of all this upon yourself, it's going to crush you. Which is exactly what happens to Ivan, by the way. I, I was going to talk about Ivan more, but I don't think I'm going to have time. But it's the same thing. Uh, he has a schizophrenic break at the end. And he ends up, like, enfeebled in bed because he's the one who says, if there is no God, everything is permitted. And uh, we're, we use our rational faculties to, like, figure out morality. And that the, the fact that suffering is, exists in the world on the innocent means that there must be no God. And he like loses his faith. Uh, but we're going to skip Ivan for now. If you've read the books, you understand. And I'm just going to say that I now think that Dostoevsky also thinks that we are in like a doomed position and that this madness is going to like consume the whole world because you have to understand what was happening in Russia at the time. It was all like building up to this decades-long crescendo that ended in the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, you had these nihilists coming in. They called themselves nihilists. They were anarchists who were like throwing bombs, burning things down. These were all college-educated people who were coming in, you know, reading these new ideas. And all the ideas that were in the air at the time, uh, most of them don't really survive now outside of like leftist like deep, deep leftist thought. Like uh, the only guy whose name comes to mind right now is like uh, Proudhon, who's like the first anarchist. And he's like a precursor to Marx. Uh, of course, Rousseau is another one, Marx. But there was many, many, many other thinkers who were coming up with all these like socialist anarchist ideas of like redistributing property and reorienting society around egalitarianism and uh, doing away with income and all these things. And all these things were floating around. So all these people were, were coming in 
uh, and putting pressure on the czar who had to put on all these reforms after the Crimean War because they lost the Crimean War to uh, Britain, which had already modernized, right? So uh, Dostoevsky was watching this progress being implemented in front of his eyes. And he was watching it with horror. He knew it was all going to end bad. He knew it was going to tear Russia apart. So he was like telling you basically to take refuge in the Christian Orthodox Russian faith in the face of all of this. Whereas I used to think it was this like sort of uh, he was like beckoning everyone to do this. Like this was this was a uh, solution for society, which maybe he thinks it is but i think really what he's saying is like this is what you have to do whereas zarathustra is not at all i do not think nietzsche wants you to go out and act like zarathustra and i think nietzsche knows this because in the twilight of the idols he has a passage about the subterraneans and the subterraneans are the people like uh, I, I even think I read that he based the concept of the subterraneans on the people Raskolnikov meets in Siberia, who were, were, of course, people that Dostoevsky himself actually met in Siberia. This was a real experience that Dostoevsky had. These were the people, right, who... Um, well, it's not that cut and dry. It's not not, not quite that simple. That it, it, they're not exactly the same one to one, but I think they were inspired by it. But the subterranean man, right, is the man who has like the warrior spirit in him, who can't be hemmed in by liberal institution and secular morality. And he just does whatever comes to him, whatever he wants to do. So the warrior spirit in society cannot be tolerated. So he's going to become a criminal. And Zarathustra talks about this, he talks about the pale criminal. And he talks about the soldier, that he sees something of himself in these people, but the pale criminal isn't quite up to the deed. He can't own it like Zarathustra does. Um, Raskolnikov is the pale criminal. Whereas the soldier kind of like takes orders from people, even though he does embody like the martial spirit. So the martial spirit that Zarathustra wants to recapture and that the subterraneans embody is that of the blonde beasts. And it's that of master morality. So that's Nietzsche's like uh, counter to like rationality. Okay, so you have rationality of the Enlightenment, and you have faith on the Dostoevsky side, and then you juxtapose faith as a counter to rationality with instincts. Your manly instincts to strike someone if you see someone doing something uh, degenerate. And you strike them. You see them doing something wrong. You strike them. Or you see them have something that you want. And you take it from them. This is how the warlords ruled in the dark ages of Europe. These were what the blonde beasts did. This is how they conducted themselves. And it made them the rulers of society. And they became kings. And they became nobles. And this is how the aristocrats and the nobles acted. They became the rulers of society. But we now have liberal institution and we live in a post-enlightenment society. So if you act like those people, right, if you try to say that I'm the ubermensch and I'm a blonde beast and you act like Zarathustra acts, you're going to go to prison. 
or you're going to be uh, relegated to the underworld. You're going to be a gangster or a mobster or something like that. So that's why Nietzsche calls them the subterraneans, because he says they're relegated to the underground of society. So Zarathustra, I think Nietzsche's too smart to th like people think that like you're supposed to go out and act like Zarathustra, but that's not it at all. Nietzsche is not giving you a self-help uh, rules here whatsoever. He's hearkening to the coming of a great man in the future who I believe is the Caesar figure who's going to come and evaluate all the values. Uh, and he's got a passage about Napoleon saying, you know, something like, I do whatever I want. My morals are whatever I feel like doing in that moment. Only someone in a position like Julius or Augustus Caesar or Napoleon can get away with something like that. So, again, I'm saying I think Zarathustra is a prophecy. And I no longer see it as like uh, a stark contradistinction to crime and punishment. Uh, and I have more to say because I really need to bring out of the ocean, but I've been going on uh, at length here and I'll let uh, Athenian come in and we'll, we'll open it up. Yeah. I mean, there's, look, there's, there's an awful lot to say here, but uh, I, uh, I'll like, like you were saying, we've been going for a while, so I'd probably better to just throw it out uh, to other people um, and see what they might have to, to add at this point, just because uh, fuck, I mean, you get me talking and I'll just never shut up. So <laughs> All right, then let, let, let me just make my last point, which is that um, uh, uh, Athenians said cynicism is nihilism. Alyosha is the counter to cynicism. The whole point of that, well, not, maybe not the whole point, but the whole thing that Brothers Karamazov is leading up to is Alyosha's final speech uh, at the funeral of a child. And he's talking to other children and he gives them this little talk and he's telling them not to become cynical and he says i was going to read the passage but he says specifically uh remember today when we were all together and we were all feeling these feelings together deeply when we were all remembering Ilyosha together we all felt the same thing at the same time you're going to get older the world is going to be harsh and 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 disappointing and I want you to remember today. And when you're older and you're, you're disillusioned, you might remember today with a cynical smile. He even uses the word that Athenian used. And he says, I don't want you to cynically smile at this. I want you to recapture this feeling. Don't be somebody who cynically smiles at the naive feelings of children. I want you to be somebody who feels the naive feelings of children as an adult. Now, here's, here's really where I'm going to open it up. And here's overcoming nihilism, Dostoevsky versus Nietzsche. You can't go out and act like Zarathustra. And you're not going to. <laughs> you're, you're just not. Right? And I think Nietzsche knows that. But you can uh, kind of give yourself over to God and give yourself over to Christ, the Virgin Mary, like Raskolnikov does. I don't think once you become cynical, I don't think you can ever get back that naive sincerity that you had as a child. I don't think anyone can do that. The closest thing you can come to doing that, 
of course, is like having faith in God. And I, I have to think that <laughs> things are such that you can only have so much faith in God if you come to God later in life. Uh, if you've been through, you know, hell, if you've been through nihilism and you come out the other side, uh, you can only have like some approximation of an, a naive faith in God. Uh, once you've seen the other side of nihilism, once you've stared into the abyss and the abyss stared back, like I feel like we are in the condition that Nietzsche is talking about. That like you can't go back to the other side of the abyss. You have to just keep going across the abyss and you're probably not going to make it to the other side. But hopefully you can get, you know, eventually someone can get there and that someone is going to be the Ubermensch, right? I had a lot to say about Mishima being someone like trying to get there and he couldn't quite make it and his suicide was like a way of pointing the way. Right. And Alyosha, it's like, I don't know. I want to hear what people think. Like, I want to believe Alyosha, you know, I want to like be Alyosha, but you just can't go back to that. And I don't think civilization can go back to what it was uh, and have this naive, you know, sincere faith in itself, even. So go ahead, Athenian, and then Meta and Grill. And um, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to add here, um, you know, I love throwing out possible ideas for um, like if people were to write like a master's thesis or something. I don't think you could do an entire dissertation on this, but um, the role of children is very interesting uh, in these two thinkers, uh, because remember, uh, not just what Alyosha has to say about uh, children, but remember, Ivan bases his nihilism precisely on uh, the not just any particular kind of uh, cruelty that he sees in the world, but even and especially what he sees happening to innocent children. Um, and and then, of course, Zosima uh, is going to have some very amazing things to say about uh, the innocence of children and how uh, that he, he actually Zosima actually says that uh, we as adults could learn from children. Now, in, in Nietzsche, this is going to take on uh, quite a bit of a different aspect uh, because uh, always, always, always remember the first uh, of all of Zarathustra's uh, sort of aphorisms or tales uh, is the metamorphoses of the spirit. Uh, you start as uh, the camel, right, that carries the burden of traditions uh, out into the desert, which means that you suffer under the present condition of things. Uh, and then somehow uh, within you, your spirit rages against all of them uh, and you metamorphize into the dragon, right, that, that shakes off all things. Uh, and then finally, once you're free of all these things, uh, the final metamorphosis is to be uh, a child. And why a child? Uh, because children are most especially equipped uh, uh, to be exemplary of creativity. Uh, a kind of innocent, naive creativity. So it's going to be very different uh, than what um, one finds in the in the role of children for them. Uh, and I just, I can't help but just simply bring this up. Uh, we could emphasize that today, especially because look what the hell we're doing to children. 
uh, with the goddamn drag queen story hours and all this kind of crap uh, and the filth uh, that the elementary school uh, teachers are doing to the kids. Uh, So this this I would say is one of those rare moments in the Western history uh, when someone like Nietzsche and Dostoevsky both would want to go back and rewrite their masterpieces just to include new layers of hell uh, for the kind of depravity that not even they recognized uh, that humans were able of uh, sinking down to uh, with, you know, the beans and the Frank and stuff like that, that they want to do uh, that. Well, whatever. I'll leave it at that. But uh, but yeah, but very, very important. Uh, Ivan bases his nihilism uh, precisely on the cruelty he recognizes in the world to children. So imagine just what Ivan's nihilism would be today if he saw those fucking drag queens and the. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, he's you're right. He's right. Um, I have to say, though, like you can't get it back. But the whole thing about religion, though. The, the whole power of religion and the purpose of religion, right, is that when you become like an older, cynical person and you go back to religion, no, you can't go back to being the child that you were, right? But the whole point of the church, the Catholic church, is that you like give over your sin to them and they regenerate you. And then uh, you go back and you give over your sin again and they regenerate you through the Eucharist and through confession. Uh, so this is like the regenerative power of the church. This regenerative. You, so when you go through these rituals over and over and over again, and as an adult person, it's revivifying you to trudge through the trudgery of like the horror of being alive. <laughs> and uh, you don't have to do it on your own. And that's what Nietzsche is talking about going away. Like when the church went away, like that went away and you took everything onto yourself uh, so that is like uh, prayer. Protestant prayer is the same thing as the like ritual of the church, the Catholic church. You go through the Eucharist, you go through the sacraments. Uh, it's like reconnecting you to God who washes away all of this like darkness that you've accumulated. If you don't have that, if society doesn't have that, it starts to uh, stagnate and decay and eat away at itself. So while I said negative things, how like Aliasha is this like naive person, um, you know, he has a point. <laughs> so, so, but, but I, I don't, it's, but the problem is it's not happening for society. It's, it's not happening for civilization. It, you can do it, but civilization can't do it. So if you go to church and you get revivified, there's a good chance that the very church you're going to is propounding the very ideas that are bringing civilization down around you. So the church is not an institution uh, to overcome nihilism. And truly, you're not even really overcoming nihilism. You're sort of like finding a redoubt against it uh, in your own life. Um, So I end up on the side of Nietzsche. And uh, yeah, so... Listen, I need I need a second. Um, so I'm gonna give speaker over to you guys, Helio. I don't know you, Helio, but you you look, you follow me, so that's cool. And you're raising your hand, so I'm gonna trust that you did the reading, and I'll uh, let you go. And but Meta Prime and Mirso were every, oh, there's a bunch of people with their hands up. Okay, we're gonna just go down the list. Whoever put their hand up first, Athenian, 
I have to do something real quick. I'm still going to be listening. I have my headphones on. But you are in charge at the, the moment and just go chronologically with the with the speakers. Uh-huh.